small beans, big beans, spicy beans, creamy beans. Those are just a few of the kinds of beans that I love. But you know which beans I love the most, do ya? It's y'all. It's your bean connoisseur, Wolf the Dog, cooking up a bean stew with you, live from 694.2 PTBP. Take your fart medicine, it's about to get gassy. This week's Howlin' with Wolf is from Dimitri the Bear, who tweeted about the show and tagged at Pretending Pod. A very simple, effective, and cherished action. They write, Dearest Elaine, this one goes out to you. You've been my friend since longer than the time when gases swirled and supernovae shined. You shared with me your feelings, thoughts, and toys and readily endured with me the joys of Wolf the Dog and our contention boys. Wow, Dimitri the Bear, it's nice to finally meet another insert name, the animal. We may be few, but we are powerful. Also, good poem, or whatever. But as a rancid poet, I am simply more clever. Whenever you write to me again, you better think twice. Because when you're stepping to wolf, buddy, you're on thin ice. But I'll allow you, just this once, to shift the blame. For I will not embarrass you, not in front of your dearest Elaine. This one here is another recap, a map of the chaps' madcap mishaps. Snap to or I'll slap you. No nap, no cap. Strap in and lap it up before we wrap it up. It's kudzu with no backbone. After the murder of both his brother, Ferguson Beans, and his brother's partner's mother, Joan Robin, Keith Vigna, back at Hotel Motel, dreamt he stood at a bar, empty except for himself and the bartender. The bar was run down, smelled of piss and vomit, and looked to have been vacated quickly by other customers. The man behind the bar was dressed in clothing from the late 1800s and spoke fearfully to Keith asking if he wanted answers or maybe cocaine. Keith asked for the former as he'd had enough of the latter. The saloon-style doors swung open, allowing the entrance of a woman Keith recognized. In her hands was a massive trunk, which she heaved onto the bar and opened. Inside was the camera, red light lit, the gun, also red light lit, and the radio, green light lit. Seeing this, Keith told the woman the camera wouldn't be ready until one, and knowing the other two take a few days, asked what he should do if they come for him. As is the way with dreams, Mary was suddenly gone, and the barkeep, Lloyd, pulled a corkscrew from his pocket and held it on the bar in front of Keith, pointy side up. 
Lloyd then slammed his head into the corkscrew and held eye contact with Keith as little bits of cocaine fell out of the hole in his head. Keith looked down and found the cocaine had fallen in the pattern of a stick figure family. He pulled out a $100 bill sporting the visage of Abraham Lincoln and snorted up this little powder family. As he did, Lloyd phased through the back of the bar and out of sight. Keith came to in his police cruiser, pulling into the department parking lot. He had been lost in the dream and and also running over the gruesome details of the murder-suicide he had just staged earlier in the early morning between Joan, Robin, and Ferguson Beans. John Lee Pettymore IV was also dreaming, dreaming he was rolling across the ground with ease, ignoring a man in a fancy suit who mopped the floor and mouth-trumpeted along with Louis Armstrong. Outside, the sky appeared dark and stormy. John seemed to be inside a closed store, but the door opened anyway, triggering the bell above. John looked up to the figure in the doorway, unable to identify them through the black cloak they wore, and this figure dropped a massive book on the ground before stumbling back into the night. John's vision began to distort and he became disoriented. As it cleared, he found that he was a baby again, sitting on the floor in the back of Clinkers. A young Gary Daly walked into the daycare at Clinkers and pulled a large leather tome from his pack. He looked over his shoulder and, turning his attention back to the book, winced and ripped a page from the spine. He paused, listened, and then stowed the book away before approaching John with the stray page. Daly pulled a knife from his bag and began to chant, reading from the paper, the script on which seemed to spark as he spoke the words. He continued to chant as he drew blood from his thumb and let it drip onto baby John. The sparks began to engulf the paper, and the flames danced around John's head before disappearing. Daly spoke to himself as he wiped the blood from John's head. Grandpa, you old kook, you old wizard, he sighed. I hope this does him good. Well, two down, one to go. Hey, hey, John. What are you thinking about? John also came to as he pulled into the Contention Police Department parking lot, riding shotgun in Drew's cherry red Mini Cooper. Drew, terrified, drove while Rosemary sat in the back with both the men's guns at the ready. Clark dreamt he was running. Running because it was imperative that he run. Running because he was close. Because this was a chance to stop them. He narrowly dodged oncoming traffic upon realizing suddenly that he was on the highway. He made it to the bridge, jumped, and recognized he wouldn't make the water. He braced for impact. Clark's shinbone pushed through his kneecap, but he continued to run, trailing a stream of blood behind him. Ahead, Clark saw his old nemesis and remembered why the animals took refuge in the water. He jumped in the creek himself, ignoring the pain in his knee, and this black ooze followed along the shore. 
From the river, Clark saw himself in the window of his own house and mustered up the strength to climb out from the river. He called to himself from the backyard. He told himself to run, to get the fuck out of there. He told himself he could get it right this time. Clark jolted awake in the back of the cab. He noted a tightness in his chest as the car turned into the parking lot of the Contention PD. It was December 5th, a foggy, blustery day in Contention. An old husky made its way down the road and paused before fleeing upon hearing the three cars approach. The officers had a moment to judge each other's situations. John turned and finally asked Rosemary's name, eventually explaining that if she wants the gun, Drew and John will need theirs back. Rosemary agreed, but was quick to explain that if she happened to go missing, Marvin Glass would find and torture anyone who might be connected. The officers noted that a stranger's car was parked in the lot, a red 2001 Mitsubishi Eclipse. Clark admitted to the taxi driver he had no money, but the cabbie explained the ride had been paid for already. Upon stepping outside, the other two cops wondered why Clark was dressed in pajamas. Clark lied, saying he'd been sleepwalking. John smoothed things over between Rosemary and his nervous partners while insisting they would all soon be traveling to the city to deliver the gun to Marvin Glass. John reminded his partners of Jermaine and Alfred Glass. Marvin's sons were trying to find the gun. Given the officer's knowledge of the gun and the sons, John suggested they might be in a good place to do business with Marvin, essentially allying the contingent PD with the Glass crime family. John thought that working together, they might be able to use the gun to bring people back from wherever they disappeared to. They planned to leave for the city as soon as the gun was in hand. The officers circled back to a conversation about the husky, the first animal they'd seen out of the water in days. They decided to head into the station rather than follow it when they remembered the strange sports car in their lot. Keith looked into the red 2001 Mitsubishi Eclipse and saw a massive container of creatine powder, empty Red Bull cans, and a pair of Oakleys. John, wielding two guns, kicked in the door to the station and shouted the words, Contention PD, freeze, douchebag. A young man in a blue suit and red striped tie had been pacing the floor of the department and froze, Red Bull in hand. The man obediently dropped the beverage on the carpet and invited the officers to take the FBI badge from his jacket. This was Agent Trent Chad. As soon as Clark had the badge, he tranquilized the agent with a dart from the circle of knowledge and Chad became immediately suggestible. Clark's partners were suspicious of the dart gun, but Clark explained that his previous night's detour had informed him the FBI would arrive. He couldn't give specifics, but this had all been expected. As the officers decided what to do with the tranquilized agent, Drew arrived and saw that Chad had been digging through the department's files. When Agent Trent Chad suggested the three present officers were some of the worst in history, the crew asked if he had any experience in PR. Chad had plenty of experience, it turned out, so the officers devised an impromptu press conference to calm the population. 
They settled on a film statement that confirmed everything was okay, that the contention PD should be given room to do what they need to do, and that everything done so far had been in the interest of the people. Having filmed the statement, they told Agent Chad to convey the same sentiments to his superiors. As Clark moved to the back of the station to retrieve his spare clothes, he noticed the cells were empty. Though the cell doors were locked, Dr. Marie Jacobs and the body of Doug Jacobs had vanished. Keith suggested they review the security footage. This footage revealed the cat running wildly about the station, jumping from spot to spot to spot. The Jacobs' bodies in their cells were picked up into the air and slammed into the ground repeatedly by some unseen force before they disappeared. The officers noticed the cat had been looking up when it became scared. Given the consistent patterns, they concluded this was all likely the work of the goo. The officers considered what they knew, the animals could see or sense the goo, and that they had the power to become animals themselves if they needed to. While discussing the possibilities presented by the strange evidence they'd collected, Keith said the camera might be active again at 1 p.m., a suspiciously specific thought. They walked into the evidence locker together and found the helmet, red light lit, the camera, red light lit, the gun, red light lit, and the radio, green light lit. Doug the cat appeared in the locker room and indicated he had something to say to Keith. Clark bolted from the room as Doug jumped up onto the shelf and began to rub along the green lit radio, fearing a body switch. Outside, Agent Chad mopped up Red Bull and Rosemary tapped an impatient foot. John Lee Pettymore pulled Doug away from the radio and chided him for the attempt to switch bodies. The cat became frantic, but John hugged him tightly to his chest and began to consider the possibility of switching the man inside the cat back out for information. When Doug agreed to switch with the FBI agent, the officers suggested Agent Trent Chad sleep and dragged his unconscious body into the evidence room. With everything set up for the switch, the officers listened from outside as the radio transitioned from music to a jumble of audio culminating in a high-pitched tone that screeched in their ears. A light flashed inside and there was silence. Soon, they heard Chad's voice from inside. It was Doug resituating himself in the body of the fit agent. Agent Chad and the cat's body attempted to make a panicked escape as they opened the door, but they captured him with Doug's help. The officers asked Drew to go buy a cat kennel, prompting a strange look. Rosemary began to insist on the gun, and the officers became condescending. She unlocked the police station door and left. The officers ran after Rosemary and found her banging on the trunk of Drew's car as he attempted to back out. She quashed the potential conflict, saying she only wanted the briefcase in the back. With that in hand, she released Drew to his errand. Despite the tense situation, Rosemary calmly explained that the case contained $5 million. Content, Rosemary returned to the police station. John and Clark followed. Inside, Doug stood marveling at his new body. He had a very clear memory of what had happened prior to the body switch, but 
Before he could explain, he began to panic. He could see the ooze, though it was invisible to everyone else. Clark rushed to the sink and began to toss water about the station. John pulled a pipe from the break room sink, allowing water to flood onto the floor. Rosemary, unsure of what was happening, perched calmly on Drew's desk with the briefcase. They attempted to get more detail from Doug, but he was terrified. The water wasn't stopping the ooze. Doug made a run for the door. Keith and Clark followed him out to the parking lot, and there they found him standing frozen. Doug's mental state continued to devolve as they led him to Keith's car, and their attempts to calm or slap sense into him failed. Clark confirmed that Doug and Chad's body was still under the influence of the tranquilizer. He was able to explain that in the days leading up to his becoming a cat, he had been sick. His wife Marie had brought the radio in and a dreamlike blur followed. He began to disassociate, claiming they were all part of a dream. He tried to explain they were not dreaming, but Clark leaned into the idea. What was the worst that could happen to Doug if he helped in the dream? Inside, John found a vacuum and attempted blindly to capture the ooze. In leaping about, he noticed Agent Chad's briefcase on one of the desks. Assuming the coast was clear, he opened it, found several signs, a list, a map, and a small cell phone jammer that was turned on. Keith and Clark brought Doug back inside to see if he still saw the goo. He didn't, and he became distracted by his reflection in the break room mirror. Doug was unsure whether lingering animal instincts had allowed him to see the goo, or if it had been an illusion. He was pretty certain he was still in a dream. John drew the group's attention to the signs in Agent Chad's briefcase. They read, Attention! A chemical spill from the unincorporated land, once the town Perdition, just west of Contention, is heading this way. Please evacuate immediately. Don't forget your pets. The list contained all the locations Agent Chad had planned to place the signs, and the map detailed all the missing persons and the dates they disappeared. All the disappearances occurred on December 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, and the 3rd marked an explosion in cases across town. Rosemary stood suddenly and gave the officers five minutes to turn over the gun. They used their time to decide between visiting Perdition or the city. The officers called Drew and asked him to put Chad's signs up in town, but Drew claimed he had seen literally no one on his errand. No customers in the store, no employees, no cars on the road, nothing. But then, a car arrived at the station driven by an older woman. It was Jan Manstein, the mother of an Ari Manstein, whose name was not immediately familiar. Jan had arrived to gather Ari's possessions from the station. Her daughter had been killed in the hospital fire in the city. The officers recognized that Ari's position matched that of Ray, or was it Tim, or Lauren, or Flor Florence, who they had sent to the hospital. As soon as they understood the name switch, the officers were flooded with memories of this fourth contention police officer, all of whom they last remembered sending to the hospital on an ambulance with Rosemary. Clark tried to console Jan as she cleaned out Ari's desk. She invited them all to her funeral the following day at the city cemetery where Ari was to be buried with her family. 
In the back room, Rosemary eyed the evidence locker as John interrogated her about the hospital fire. Rosemary eventually admitted to starting the fire that killed their colleague. John insisted that she play it cool while Jan was around. As Jan finished picking up Ari's things, she struggled to decide whether or not to tell her husband, Ari's father, Stan Manstein, who had been in the city asylum for 28 years. When John offered to tell him, she agreed enthusiastically. Just as Jan was leaving, they asked if she'd seen anybody about town as she came through, and she told them she hadn't. With Jan out of the station, the officers finally let themselves feel shaken by the conflicting personas of this mysterious colleague. The memories seemed to combine into one almost anonymous individual, their only connection being the family name Manstein. John pulled Rosemary aside again before they piled into the car. Out of view, he pushed his pistol to Rosemary's head and threatened to kill her if she didn't return Drew's money. Rosemary surrendered the money and slowly turned so that the gun's barrel was centered between her eyes. <laughs> it's hilarious that you think you can kill me. <laughs> She chuckled before walking back out into the station. John collected himself and stashed the briefcase in the evidence locker. An email from Wolf the Dog revealed their PSA was about to air. The message was followed by news of the Beans Robin murder-suicide. John and Clark looked up at Keith to gauge his reaction. Keith stared at the ground and admitted that Ferguson was his brother but said he hadn't seen him in a while. Keith agreed it'd be worthwhile to check in with the city PD about the crime scene, the crime scene he had orchestrated. As the officers headed toward the highway on their way to the city, they confirmed the utter abandonment of contention. Gone were the runners, the beggars, the teenagers, and their pot smoking. Gone too were the protests. The town would have been silent if not for the distant sound of other cars and the cries of abandoned animals from the creek. Given that two of the cruisers had been involved in accidents, the officers told Rosemary to lead the way and they piled into a single cruiser with Doug Chad. The crew stopped by Clark's spotless garage to ransack the US military branded crates they had stolen from John Peter's storage units for pistols, shotguns, rifles, a shoulder-mounted anti-aircraft weapon, an EMP rifle, a grappling gun, a small gun that shot tracers, lots of grenades, a sniper rifle, and a very tiny but powerful gun. Each of the officers also donned body armor and packed a small bag of cocaine. They remembered, at the very last moment, to bring the strange gun and camera with the odd glass tubes. On the ride to the city, John placed a call to Harry Clinker and immediately realized they had packed and failed to deactivate the cell phone jammer. As John waited for Harry to pick up, Keith began to receive missed calls and voicemail notifications. On the phone, John asked Harry if he knew where everyone had gone, but the gravel-voiced man could only guess. Harry, in turn, began to ask about the actions of the officers and lie the protests, but was happy to side with his daycare alumni. 
Harry was always something of a confidant for the officers, and so John began spilling details of the bizarre events they had witnessed in the last few days, much to the surprise of everyone else in the car, especially Doug Jacobs. Harry expressed some worry, suggesting a spiritualist might be useful to John, so John inquired about Harry's partner, Gary Daly, who dabbled in acting as a medium. Harry admitted Gary hadn't come home the night before. He did say that Gary had been meeting with his book group more regularly, a gathering of occultists that included Dr. Marie Jacobs and Mildred Mitchell. John thanked the barman and ended the call. Keith had received a single text and four voicemails while the jammer had been active, all from John Lee Pettymore IV. John ranted about Keith breaking in, fucking with his Smokies, and admitted that he had $5 million. The group texted Drew, asking him to keep an eye on contention in their absence. Doug Chad clarified that his central motivation was returning to his own body, but that he was willing to help for some cash on the side. At Doug's suggestion, the officers called Gary Daly on speakerphone, and after several rings, they heard Gary in the middle of a conversation. I told you, you old witch, you're just going crazy, you know, that's all. That's fine, and we can deal with that. Uh, hello? The group suggested Gary check in with Harry. When they asked about the witch, Gary explained he was chatting with Mildred Mitchell, the grandmother of Tildy B. Mitchell at her house. She was suffering a breakdown of sorts. See, Mildred was under the impression that her histories have been split, and she has become obsessed with a picture of the founders of contention. Silas Cole, she insisted, looked different than he did before, less attractive and possibly stupider. Mildred also believes she could see the reflection of Tildy B in the photo. The officers were shaken by the thought that the gun, at least, appeared to send people back in time, and the split histories could explain in part their mysterious colleague Ari. John asked about Gary's grandfather and described the recent dream in which Gary had performed a protection ritual on John. Gary admitted this had indeed occurred and went on to say his grandfather, Gingerfred, had passed down a book with three pages left and instructed Gary to read those pages over the heads of the boys, spilling blood in the process. The reason for this, Gary's grandfather had explained, was that the three men were the key to everything. They thanked the owner of the Daily Fa and prepared to enter the city. The streets of the city were drab, gray, and littered with trash. A foul smell hung in the air and billboards covered the faces of buildings. The city residents seemed bloated and lifeless. In opposition to the industrial gloom, flowers of every shade and shape grew in the alleys and from cracks in the pavement. Rosemary led the officers downtown to a tall granite skyscraper. In a small surveilled parking garage, Rosemary gestured for the officers to enter a small elevator made of polished onyx. Everyone, including Rosemary, agreed that Doug's presence as FBI might prove valuable leverage. Rosemary remained in the garage, though, as the doors closed. The elevator contained no buttons or floor indicators, and for a while it seemed as though it didn't move at all. As John held the gun artifact up to the ceiling and called for an audience, one of the walls opened into a dark room. A spotlight in the center of the room partially lit Marvin Glass. 
A humanoid figure with a massive, gaunt frame, dressed in a fitted black tuxedo and a red bow tie. The lower half of Marvin's face was visible in the light. The skin there appeared hairless and translucent. Above the sharp, see-through chin, candy-red lipstick messily encircled a round hole. The orifice began to move as Marvin Glass introduced himself and asked if the crew knew why they were in this room. The officers weren't sure. Marvin explained that Ferguson Beans had been trying to buy cocaine from a contention police officer, cocaine that had been stolen from Marvin Glass. Rosemary was sent to collect the money from the deal. This surprised John, who hastily suggested he knew nothing about the cocaine deal, and Glass called out the lie for what it was. The officers were confused. Rosemary had been insistent about the gun, but Marvin said he sent her specifically to recover the money. They pulled Doug Chad aside and instructed him to say the money had been confiscated by the FBI. Marvin flew into a rage before quickly calming down. He explained that Alfred's state was pitiable, but not the current concern. John clarified it was Jermaine they were hoping to return to Marvin. John laid the situation out. It wouldn't be long before whatever haunted contention made its way into the city. Marvin explained in plain words that they cared more for the money than for their missing son. Realizing the extent of their miscalculation, the officers began to switch blame to Rosemary. Marvin became increasingly agitated as John recalled the money had been in the woman's hand, but she let it go for the promise of this strange gun. Marvin revealed they had orchestrated the killing of Ferguson Beans through Keith's niece, Frances Beans. Glass congratulated him on finishing the job so effectively. Frances herself emerged from the darkness behind the desk and flipped her uncle double birds as a third figure with spiky white hair and a long white lab coat joined the glass retinue. This mad scientist stood tall behind Francis Beans and slowly tapped long, wobbly fingers against her protege's collarbones. John and Keith doubled down on their denial of all these events, but as the women backed into the darkness, Keith stepped forward and asked for his money. Marvin told him he would receive his winnings if he was able to prove himself worthy. Marvin offered John support if he could prove himself capable. They then apologized to Clark for having to be in the room, which began to fill with a noxious gas. Clark ran to the elevator, but failed to pry it open. John asked Keith point blank if he had sold them out, and Keith denied it before passing out. The officers woke in separate cages to the sounds of a jubilant crowd. The cages hung from the ceiling of a smoky, dimly lit room. Three other cages were present, populated by a muscled stranger, a malnourished child, and Doug Jacobs in the body of Agent Trent Chad. Below, the audience indulged in vices and crowded the middle of the room on couches, cushions, 
piles of blankets, a papasan chair. The sinners eagerly watched two teenagers fight in a plexiglass cage hanging over the center of the space. The crowd cheered as one teen began to viciously beat the other, spraying those below with blood through holes in the elevated fighting box's floor. Keith checked his underwear to see if his tiny gun had been seized. Thankfully for all of them, it had not. The winner of the bloody fight stumbled to his feet and tried to run back to his cage, which had locked into place on the side of the hanging plexiglass room. But he slipped on the blood of the beaten boy and panicked as the ceiling began to lower. The weakened champion boy scraped and crawled just quickly enough to slide into his cube of metal bars as the ersatz ceiling closed in on the perforated floor, eliciting a guttural moan from the deceased, crushed, juiced boy. The blood rained down onto the gaudy and deranged crowd below. Many held their mouths open and tongues out. The two cages attached to the plexiglass combat cage closed and withdrew through an exit in the wall, taking the winner of the fight with them. The officers did some quick math and realized their turn would come soon. Keith had indeed located his tiny powerful gun in his briefs and he called over to Doug to confirm the man was still suggestible. As a precautionary measure, they told him losing would allow him to wake up from the nightmare he believed he was experiencing. As retribution for the current state of affairs, John attempted to urinate on the audience, but slipped and fell on his own penis. A few members of the audience happily bathed in the bloody urine he emitted. Clark Bishop scanned the crowd and noticed several important figures, including the mayor, the chief of police, and the district attorney of the city. Keith looked for a host or leader of the event and spotted at the bar a lone black-clad figure who sported a mustache and medical scars on his forehead and neck. The man seemed to be watching over the event rather than partaking. As Clark rechecked his cage, it began to move along the conveyor and toward the plexiglass room. The cage of the malnourished boy followed suit. As the cages locked onto the combat chamber, their doors opened and a buzzer sounded, eliciting a new wave of cheering from the audience. The child, not older than 12, slowly crawled from the cage and stood. He began to beat his chest and scream. Clark called down through the plexiglass, trying to convince someone in the crowd to put an end to the fight. Clark's failure to rally the audience saw him caught off guard when the boy flung himself across the room and kicked the officer's head. The kick sent Clark into a rage, and he turned on the malnourished boy. The two began to grapple, but Clark easily gained an advantage on the small child, pressing him into the floor of the room. The boy's eyes widened as he saw the ceiling of the cage begin to descend. Clark bashed the boy's head against the plexiglass, hoping to render him unconscious. When the boy finally went under, Officer Bishop stood and began to proclaim his innocence, seeing as the boy had attacked first. The crowd laughed as the ceiling closed in on the two. Clark grabbed the boy and dragged him across the room toward his cage. 
As soon as Clark crossed the threshold with the boy, the cage electrified and the officer's skin cooked. But when Officer Bishop pushed the boy back out under the looming human garlic press, the electrical current terminated. The boy's body was pressed through the holes in the bottom of the combat room, the pulp of which rained down on the crowd below. Clark's cage disengaged and headed away, but seemed to jam and stop just short of the dark exit. Fifty yards away, the two other officers noticed the word mayhem tattooed on the back of the muscled man who then introduced himself as Oz Mayhem Wolf. Oz couldn't locate Marvin in the crowd, but revealed the man in black was Kevin, Marvin's head of security. John asked Oz if a large amount of money might persuade Marvin to free them, and Oz scoffed at the idea. People in their situation were for sport, not work. Oz explained the fights in the Den of Sin were easy. Keith considered his chances against a man like Oz and began to weep. He attempted to trigger the door release just as the cage began to move. Keith's skin burned as his cage locked against the plexiglass wall and John Lee Pettymore's cage locked into the other side of the room. The two men surveyed each other across the blood pool that once made up a child. Keith reached into his underwear, grasping his tiny but powerful gun, and the men worked together, Keith blasting the floor and John stomping on the cracks. When stray shots killed denizens of the Den of Sin, others rushed in to lap up their blood. It took three jumps to bust through the perforated circle of plexiglass floor, and the two officers landed directly on a man in a papasan, crushing him. The crowd went wild. Some attempted to flee while others basked in the violent scene. Keith fired toward the bar but missed Kevin, obliterating the barkeep instead. In a rage, John flew at the nearest attendee, a man with a curly mustache and a flowing ascot. He screamed into the throng while Clark spat from above. The crowd quickly dissipated, leaving a small group of people obsessively drinking and snorting the blood on the ground. Kevin also remained. The man hadn't moved from his place at the bar. Keith tried to tackle this mysterious head of security, but Kevin caught him midair and slammed Officer Vigna's head into the bar, leaving him limp and unconscious. As Clark shook his cage above, John rushed to Keith and grabbed the tiny gun from his hands. Looking into Kevin's eyes, John felt as though he recognized this man, but couldn't quite place him. Kevin's dead stare seemed to flicker with the same acknowledgement, and John seized the moment to fire a couple rounds at the man. He missed, and Kevin broke for the door, leaving John to nurse his penis amidst the carnage. As the last of the crowd ran from the room, Clark's cell broke from the ceiling. The door opened as it struck the floor, but Clark was pierced by one of the cage's bars, and his body came to rest, listless, at the bottom of the cage. John Lee Pettymore IV found himself the sole surviving cop from contention here in the Den of Sin. Two creepy twins were still in the den, trying to sneak out, but John caught them and found out they designed the security system here in Marvin's lair. John tried to bargain with them to escort him out with limited success, so he shot one in the knee. Fearful, the twins swore to pay John $5 million in exchange for their lives. 
This was interrupted by a voice near Clark Bishop's shish-kebobbed corpse. John looked over and saw a hunched man wearing an old, tattered robe with a hood that covered his face. The voice was crackly and muttering something ancient and jaunty. A bright light began to form under the hood that was obfuscating this being's face. As it reached its hands into the light, the hood was drawn back, and this old man ripped an unnaturally bright light out of his familiar face. This much older Clark Bishop took his beaming hands, reached deep into the chest of the unconscious Clark Bishop, yanked the bar from his younger self's chest, and threw his limp former body over his older cloaked shoulder. The two Clark Bishops, old and dead respectively, then disappeared in a ball of light. The off-putting brothers, Rich and Richard Nichols, told John Lee Pettymore IV that John Peters had tried to big-time it at the Den. Apparently, he had posted online about these visions he saw while in a coma. When he came out of the coma, he was visited by an Agent Victor, who told him about a mind-probing device being used by ISIS. John shot Richard Nichols in the other knee, and then he finished the job and put old Dick Nichols out of his pleasurable misery. Rich began drinking his brother's blood before John forced him out of the den into a long hallway where they found the individual rooming quarters of Rosemary, Kevin, Charles, and Francis. Rosemary had a framed picture of Germaine Glass hidden under her pillow. On the photo of the slender, muscular man with tribal tattoo sleeves on both arms going down to his hands and fingertips, there was a sharpied heart around this man's face, which was stoic, almost blank. Kevin had a Spartan room with a desk, bed, and a chest of drawers. Under the desk, he had carved repeatedly, not Kevin. In between the mattress and box spring, there was a notepad. On every page, it said, I had the same dream again last night. She just says, I'm so sorry. He's just so beautiful. You don't have to do this. We can leave. We can run. Carved repeatedly inside the chest of drawers was the phrase, Mary in the Woods. Charles was doing extensive research on contention, including the Piston Pig Farm. A draft email on his computer revealed that he and Rosemary had run into Tildy B in possession of the gun. Francis's room was a complete wreck, but was covered in advanced, seemingly impossible mathematical equations. There was also a small drawing of one of the small spheres. As John and Rich began to leave the dorm area, they noticed four figures in brown uniforms with fishhook scythes dragging the body of Keith Vigna down the hallway into an elevator. Continuing the search across the hallway in a room lined with file cabinets, John Lee Pettymore IV found his own file. He learned that he was adopted by John Lee Pettymore III from Cole's Orphanage. The next file he found was Kevin's. There was a picture attached. Missing the surgical scars and looking much younger and happier than Kevin, the hollow shell of a man working from Arvin Glass, John recognized his father, John Lee Pettymore III. 
The file revealed that an unknown, alias Kyle, and Love, alias Karen, and John Lee Pettymore III, alias Kevin, were once a team called K-Cell. Marvin Glass caught Kevin and Kyle, but Karen was able to escape. Marvin supernaturally forced Kevin to kill Kyle. Glass was after information on how the sphere worked. John also came across a file named Satan with a picture of a disturbing looking woman with a mouth that not only took up half of her face, it showed an amount of unbridled pleasure he could barely comprehend. Kevin, the empty vessel that was once John's father, found the snooping pair and began emptying clips into the room. John IV sacrificed Rich Nichols to Kevin's withering fire before attempting to face down his father with Keith's small but powerful pistol. John winged Kevin, revealing mechanical components below his skin, but to no avail, as John Lee Pettymore IV was immediately mowed down by his own adopted father. And then the world was dark for John, but he still felt very much alive. He was moving like Gogurt busting out of a plastic tube by pressure alone, he felt himself squeeze out of a dark, constricting space onto the cold, hard floor, and he began rolling. His limbs extended from his form and slammed into the file cabinet walls on either side of him. It gave John, or whatever John now was, the leverage he needed to fling his silver round frame at his target. As he landed down on Kevin, one of his appendages sliced into the soft tissue on the back of his prey's neck. Another snapped Kevin's head forward, and John could feel the fracture as a third reached in, gripped the top of the spine, and ripped the entire spinal cord out of John Lee Pettymore III's body in one swift motion, promptly forcing itself into the then vacant spinal column of this human being. Keith Vigna, unconscious, perhaps dead, saw himself violently holding a pillow over someone's face when the pillow itself transformed into an oily black ooze, and it washed over the face below it, not of a person, but the face of the watch his father William gave his brother Ferguson so many years ago. Looking down at his wrist, he was wearing this watch, but when he looked up, he didn't recognize the world. Dust clouds settled to reveal a horse pulling a wagon through a small frontier town, and the bald man Keith knew as Billy Harrison, the one who took Keith's uniform and gun in the clinic. He was walking in Keith's direction, and he kept repeating, I did everything that you asked me to do, Officer Vigna. Holding up the strange-looking camera Officer Pettymore found in the car of Julie Maxwell, Harrison took a picture of Vigna. The light was blinding, and as it faded, Keith was standing in darkness, dank and chilly. Right in front of Keith was a massive tank filled with the now eerily too familiar opaque ooze. Keith pressed his face against the tank to see something creeping toward him, and as the face of Tildy B. Mitchell came into focus, Keith stood in an open field, the dead grass covered in a thin frieze crunching under his feet as he approached a metal hatch. But water, gross, murky water with bits of grass and sludge began spewing from the creases of this metal hatch. The water began to flood this field at an alarming pace. Keith looked down and saw his reflection in the rippling water, but something looked off. 
Keith came to in a strange room on an operating table. The room was lined with jars of organs and body parts, as well as tubes that ran to vats filled with fish. The tall, mad scientist with spiky white hair woke up a dude with brown hair and frosted tips, wearing frat boy clothes and a puka shell necklace. His name was Brett. The scientist clicked a button and both Keith and the fratty Brett felt an intense pain through their entire bodies. She clicked the button again and the pain was gone. Suddenly, a fish head with a small human body popped out of Brett's pocket. The little fish fella was curious about the world. Both he and Brett had never left the room and they were really hoping Keith could help them venture into the beyond. Keith promised the two experiments he would take them to Las Vegas if they could help him. Just then, Keith's niece, Frances, came into the room. She showed Keith a mirror to reveal surgical scars across his brow, down his nose, past his lip, and on to his collarbone. There were also scars from the tip of his finger up to his elbow. She explained they had brought him back to life with a few upgrades. He had a supply of cocaine in his forearm, which could be shot out of his index finger into his new metal nose, a nose capable of handling as much cocaine as his internal organs could muster. He also lost his ability to empathize with humanity, something brand new to Keith Vigna, the now partially mechanical man. Keith named the little fishman Peter Dieter. After Francis left the room, Brett and Peter freed Keith from his restraints. Keith, only in his surgery gown, threw on Brett's extra clothes, a too tight orange polo, teal shorts that were three sizes too big, and a pair of Sperry's, and put Peter Dieter up on his shoulder. They all left the room, and as they tried to find the exit, they happened upon a black marble hallway with a massive door at the end and four guards with scythes shaped like fish hooks. The guards looked like fish people, like Peter, but fully grown, human-sized. As Keith, Brett, and Peter bailed, Francis intercepted the group and took them to see Marvin Glass. They walked back into that black marble hallway, through the enormous door at the end, and into a room the size of a basketball court. One wall was made entirely of glass, which looked into a murky aquarium. Marvin stood there, looking into the water, before he turned around to face the chai fraps. Francis clicked a button on a small remote, and everyone in the frap frat was paralyzed. With a clear upper hand, Marvin offered Keith a deal. He would give the new metal Vigna the $1 million earned by killing Ferguson if Keith will do just one more thing for Marvin. To show the former police officer, current android, how serious he was, Marvin grabbed Peter, walked back over to the unfathomably massive aquarium, and reached unnaturally through the glass. He placed Peter Dieter into the murky water and pulled his gaunt spindly arm back into his dry office. Some sort of giant fish monster in the aquarium swam by and swallowed Peter Dieter as everyone in the room watched. Marvin then set his sights on Brett. He took the frat boy apart piece by piece until the problematic robotic boy could no longer function. Then Marvin Glass assigned the new Keith Vigna to his next task. In order to prove Keith's loyalty and pay his debt, Keith must go to the Manstein funeral and bring back Stan Manstein. 
Ari's father for questioning. Keith agreed. A thick fog obfuscated Clark's vision. The air, like gravity, felt stronger than normal, and the whisper of a familiar voice sent a shiver down his spine. Clark sensed a sudden drop in temperature as a stainless steel door appeared and opened in front of him. Behind, a woman began to scream. When he turned around, he was greeted by the face of Tildy B. Mitchell on a television screen. In a shaky voice, she began repeating herself over and over. Bonus round. Bonus round. Bonus round. Suddenly, Clark was running down the street, the street on which he lived. He noted a familiar boy about to enter the house on the left. Clark tried to scream, but the fog veiled him once again. His screams echoed infinitely into the endlessness that engulfed him. Then, a new voice reached him, and he looked up to see the face of his once mentor, Gerald Fingerson. It had been some time since the two had seen each other, but Gerald had aged with grace. It was December 6th, a crisp winter morning, and Clark was dressed only in briefs and a pump-and-dump branded t-shirt. Clark wore no shoes or socks, and despite the cold and the recent events, the man felt amazing, the best he'd felt in a long time. A string was wrapped around Clark's wrist and attached to a bag of ice, from which protruded a rod. The bag of ice leaked red liquid down the driveway on which the two men stood centered in a suburban neighborhood. Clark noted the name Jim Cook on the mailbox nearby. Gerald didn't know how Clark had come to be in the driveway. He discovered him there as the officer regained consciousness. Clark hastily recalled the events in the Den of Sin, none of which were familiar to Gerald. Opening the bag of ice, Clark recognized the bar was pulled from a cage in the Den of Sin. As he checked himself for wounds that might account for the blood, Clark pulled up his shirt to reveal a gaping hole where his heart should be, lined with skin and cartilage. He was rightfully shaken, despite feeling physically well. Gerald declined to touch Clark's body hole and suggested they step inside the house where he'd planned to share a dinner of cashew chicken with Jim Cook. Clark had to inform Gerald that Jim had been found dead in an alley. Clark and Gerald decided it would be wise to leave the street and made their way into the unlocked Cook residence. The house was older, but cozy. Papers and binders were strewn across the living room, covering every surface, and stagnant dust hung in the light from the window. Clark made his way to the bedroom and donned a pair of Jim Cook's pants, several sizes too small. Back downstairs, Clark noticed a picture of his parents on the fridge. They were posed in silly hats with Jim Cook, who smiled begrudgingly along. His investigation further discovered a bullet-torn tarot card the major arcana card, the devil, and a taxidermied baby squirrel bagged and placed in a chest of drawers. Behind the couch, Clark noticed an empty holster. The words Scientia Mors Est were tooled into the leather. Below that was a dash and an uppercase K. In the bathroom, Clark found a smooth silver ring with a plateau on top. Two books stood out among the papers in the living room. The leather cover of the thicker tome was embossed with a familiar symbol, a large circle surrounded by six smaller circles, and the other was a thin red notebook. It seemed vaguely familiar. Clark opened the leather tome where a girthy wooden bookmark had been placed near the back. Written over and over on the ancient parchment was the phrase, It is only through death that he may rise again. 
Drawn over the obsessive scrawling was a hooded figure with brilliant light shining from its maw. The book closed with supernatural force as Clark tried to flip forward and an envelope fluttered out from between its pages. Inside the envelope was a letter signed by Jim Cook. Jim seemed to be refuting something called the revelation of the overseer, calling it the scratches of a broken man. The letter went on to outline a set of new guidelines, including the immediate reassignment of all members of the disposal unit. The circle symbol was present at the top of the letter and it was accompanied by the creed, faith through knowledge is just called knowledge. The clicking hammer of a cocked gun startled Clark. He raised his hands in the air, dripping blood from the ice bag. Chief Maggie Cook spoke behind him, leveling her pistol at his back. Clark, what the hell are you doing in my daddy's house? Tears formed in Clark's eyes as he and Maggie lowered their arms. Gerald half-heartedly stood between the two as Clark explained that he thought Maggie was dead. The former chief also confessed an amount of confusion and the two awkwardly sandwiched Gerald in a hug. Clark told Maggie he'd seen the charred remains of her body and he withdrew from the embrace. The woman was dressed in a dark hoodie and jeans and it marked the first time Clark had ever seen her out of uniform. She brushed by him to retrieve the red notebook. Maggie was unsure of what to make of Clark's presence in her father's home. He explained he had gaps in his memory, and Maggie prodded Clark's chest where the tunnel had formed. She gasped as Clark lifted his shirt. Immediately excited, she insisted Clark follow her, that she'd been waiting a long time for these events to occur. Gerald interjected, claiming that Maggie had always been a bitch, and Maggie asked if Clark was alright. He began to realize Maggie couldn't see Gerald Fingerson. Gerald's voice became echoey as he frantically tried to convince Clark that Maggie was not to be trusted. Addressing Maggie, he insinuated that Clark knew what was at the mill before Clark approached the old man, reaching out to his librarian mentor. As they grasped hands, Clark felt nothing but air. Gerald Fingerson dissipated. Clark, are you, are you with me? Are you here? Clark turned solemnly back to Maggie. Before they got to work, Clark suggested he fill his bag with more ice, fearing it contained what had been scraped out to form the tunnel in his chest. Maggie investigated and found a heart impaled on the bottom of the metal rod. Clark emptied Jim's ice trays before joining Maggie and her silver Camry for a ride out to the mill on the other side of the city. Clark used the silent drive to examine the canvas bag next to the human heart in the ice. The bag contained tiles with the letters S-T-L-E-N-R and a symbol a circle inside a square. Clark quickly determined those are the letters given at the beginning of the bonus round of Wheel of Fortune. Clark broke the silence in the car when he asked Maggie why she was still alive. She answered by explaining that the leather tome in her dad's house contained a prophecy, the revelation of the overseer. The circle of knowledge believed the overseer was coming to set an order in the world and they prepared the way and protected the world from unnatural forces. Maggie had been skeptical, 
but she claimed to be coming around to an understanding of the forces at play. She believed fire and fear kept the world safe, that most people couldn't handle the knowledge of the supernatural, but that people like her and Clark and the circle of knowledge had been tasked with a responsibility to keep the world moving. Clark admitted to having met Leon Simpson and broke down as he tried to explain the horrors the officers had experienced in her absence. When Clark asked Maggie why she wasn't there, she asked in turn if the ant questions when it's being moved by a boot. She alluded to the idea that much larger things were at work than what Clark had seen so far. They lapsed into silence again as the Camry pulled onto a country road outside of town, passing through a verdant tunnel of trees on the way to the mill. A few miles later, they arrived at the massive brick building with two enormous smokestacks. The mill on the other side of the city was filled with people, none of whom paid any mind to Clark's current dress or the blood dripping from the ice bag he carried. Clark recognized no one. Maggie led them through a secure door in the back and down a spiraling stone staircase. Clark recognized the room at the bottom, circular, with six stone slabs. Each slab held two bodies, and a xenonematode was attached to each body. The unconscious figures were covered in open sores from previous placements, and their skin was rotted. Maggie led Clark to the center and chuckled grimly, asking Clark to lie down on the middle slab. Clark was reluctant, remembering that Leon had said he would need to sacrifice neither flesh nor limb. Maggie agreed, mostly, but suggested a little flesh was necessary now that the game had changed. Clark called for Leon, but Maggie told him they'd been sent away. She grabbed his shoulders and repeated the creed. Faith through knowledge. It's just called knowledge. She claimed Clark needed knowledge and pressed on his chest before moving down to his left foot still bare. Maggie twisted a circular handle at the base of the slab and pulled up a cartridge the size of a parking pylon. Inside the cartridge was a xenonematode and with a swift motion Maggie pulled it out and placed it on Clark's foot. Clark's vision immediately darkened. Suddenly, the ground he stood on was made of light. Clark felt absolute contentment in this new world, but noted he was otherwise surrounded by absolute darkness. Twelve figures were clear in the distance, as was a giant black mass, all dimly lit from below. The twelve appeared to be following the massive being as they walked away from Clark. When Clark moved closer, he began to hear their chanting. Ahead of them, stood a towering beast, its shoulders 25 feet from the ground. As Clark stared, its image seemed to form and reform, changing and glitching, and it roared. And Clark fell to the ground and began to weep uncontrollably. Clark came to in the mill on the other side of the city as Maggie returned the xenonematode back into the ground. Clark, that thing's coming, and we keep it from coming here. Clark was shaken and he stammered over questions about what he had just witnessed. He asked if there's anything Maggie could do about the heart. She lifted it from the bag by the rod, slowly sliding the organ from the metal. Maggie held the heart in one hand as it began to sputter blood. She calmed Clark and retrieved a small wooden stick from the corner. She ran the stick through the hollow rod and caught two small pieces of metal that emerged from the other end. 
Maggie reminded Clark of their backup plan from the last job and noted he hadn't come back in time. The circle of knowledge had already tried to take his heart once, and yet he still stood. Maggie meditated on the fact that things move stranger in the world than most thought possible. She gave Clark his first job, refusing to answer further questions. The job would take Clark to Ari's funeral at the city cemetery. Maggie admitted to being shaken by the woman's death, but it presented an opportunity to be in the same place as Stan Manstein, who rarely left the city asylum. Clark's job was to assassinate Stan at his daughter's funeral. Clark was initially horrified, but he remembered the unspeakable entity waiting to break into this world, steeled himself, and requested a firearm. John Lee Pettymore IV stood in front of a storage unit with a large yellow symbol on the door. It was the logo of the Circle of Knowledge, six circles surrounding a larger circle. Inside, he found a wooded territory, and he was suddenly holding one of the silver balls. It gave off a comforting warmth. Looking out, he saw a sky of endless darkness, under which two children held hands. John's senses began to be overwhelmed by the sounds of torment that filled his ears. And then he woke up in the room with the filing cabinets where he had been shot repeatedly by his own father, and John was confronted with the sight of his own body dead on the ground. Inspecting his reflection, he saw he was now in his father's former frame. John decided to covertly remain Kevin for as long as he could. Rosemary called for Kevin to join her, and John Lee Pettymore IV followed in his new body, though he largely failed in his attempts to extract any intelligence. At the end of a black marble hallway, jumpsuited fishmen guarded Marvin's massive, strange office door. Marvin greeted them, Rosemary and Kevin, and announced they were moving into the final phase of Contention's demolition. A small silver sphere sat on a tripod atop Marvin's desk, and an intense light show glinted out from the room behind him. Marvin ordered Rosemary and Kevin to go to the funeral of Ari Manstein, the contention police officer, to ensure that the new Charles, Keith Vigna, was successful in his mission to apprehend Stan Manstein. As they headed out into the city, John Lee Kevinmore witnessed a rowdy band of revelers using dirty dog grooming loyalty cards to enter a grate that took them underground. Keith left the glass compound and headed to the funeral of Ari Manstein in his police cruiser. The strange gun and camera with glass tubes were no longer in this car. On his phone, he found multiple missed calls from Drew, as well as a voicemail that said the mass is growing and pleaded for the officers to stay far away from contention. He sounded panicked, and the call ended abruptly. Keith chose to not change out of his tight orange polo and big coral shorts and boat shoes. In the city cemetery, the smell of a crawfish boil wafted through the above-ground mausoleums and directed Vigna to the funeral, where he spoke briefly to Ari's mother and took a seat in the front row. Clark came to on the concrete slab in the middle of the underground dungeon room below the mill on the other side of the city. Maggie Cook backed away quickly as she lowered the xenonematode back into the ground. Maggie moved on, told Clark that 
After he completed his mission of killing Stan Manstein at Ari Manstein's funeral, he was free to do whatever he pleased. She offered to house him back at the Circle of Knowledge if he wanted. This job won't be daily at first, she said, but they would get him trained up and working more often eventually. Clark pressed her on it not being daily. He was shaken by the thing he saw in his vision and wanted to stop it immediately. She was glad to see Clark's fire. She said that's exactly what they need in the organization. Maggie gave Clark a burner phone, a gun, an old contention police uniform, and a silver Honda Accord. She'd be in contact with him the next day, December 7th. Clark stopped for gas on the way to Ari's funeral. While he was busy pumping, a woman stealthily dropped a phone into his car passenger seat. Phone was scrubbed clean, save a single text message that read, Do you want to know why your parents were killed? Clark immediately texted back, Who is this? Clark arrived at the city cemetery and followed his nose to a small clearing where a funeral service was set up for Ari Manstein. Ari's mother, Jan, greeted visitors in the front. Sat up there by the crawfish boil was Keith Vigna, wearing Sperry boat shoes, big coral blue shorts, and a tight orange polo. From Clark's distance, Keith looked healthy. Clark, however, last remembered seeing Keith fucking die. Then again, Clark seemingly came back from the dead himself, so maybe it wasn't that surprising. Clark didn't see Stan or John Lee Pettymore. Leaning casually against a mausoleum, he tried to inconspicuously hide in the back of the crowd. While Rosemary drove John Lee Pettymore IV and the body of his father, John Lee Pettymore III, whom she knew as Kevin, to the cemetery, Rosemary revealed the news of Charles's death shook her as she thought the enhancements made them more robust. Kevin reflected on the truth. Everything dies. They made their way through the raised New Orleans-style tombs to the funeral, where they found a large crawfish boil. John saw Keith sitting in the front row in a ridiculous outfit, and Clark near the back in an old-fashioned contention PD uniform. John split away from Rosemary, approached Clark from behind, and muttered, Bubblegum tree. Recognizing the body of Kevin, Clark was apprehensive but tentatively responded, Bubblegum tree. John Lee Kevin Moore said nothing and faded back into the crowd. Jan Manstein settled behind the podium, thanked everyone for coming, and introduced her ex-husband, who doesn't get out very often. Stan Manstein, dressed in all white, his hair and beard both long and tangled, his face weathered like leather, approached the microphone flanked by three heavily armed guards with various scars across their faces. And then Stan began to speak in a fully nonsensical language. But through the noise, the three officers heard Stan in perfect English as time itself began to slow down. My daughter was kind, hardworking, and good every time. She was those things when she was a police officer. She was those things when she was a school teacher. She was those things when she was a historian. You see, one long time ago, when this land was stolen and pioneer towns began to form, Silas Cole was a miner in the mine that employed the town nearby of contention. While down in the mines, Silas Cole came upon an odd black substance and he became obsessed with studying it. 
the substance was invisible to others but not to Cole. Exploiting the substance's wrong qualities, he became an inventor and made so much money off of his inventions that he bought the mine. He built an office on the top floor of the tall, skinny mining company building that sat right above the mine itself. He began to harvest the residue and acquired a much firmer grasp on its tendencies. He invented wild, magical things. Each new invention brought him wealth and power, but also released more of this inky substance into the town. To divert his raising paranoia, he began looking for a partner. He found a similarly intelligent engineer and his wife, Mary Cole, who could also see the substance they began calling residue. But Silas Cole was scared of their inventions. He became paranoid that other people could see the residue that was loose all over the town. Consumed, he believed the town was plotting against him, so he began kidnapping people he suspected knew too much. As Stan spoke, Clark surveyed the crowd, slowed around him as he moved at normal speed. The guards looked slowed as well. Clark made his way to the front. John moved into a position behind Stan. Keith made eye contact with Clark, and they bubblegum treed. Clark saw Keith's fresh scars running from his elbow down to the tip of his finger, as well as across his forehead down his face. It didn't seem like the crowd was able to understand Stan's speech, but the three armed guards started to converge on Manstein, though they moved in slow motion. Following his orders, Clark drew his gun and shot Stan in the chest. Time immediately resumed back to normal pace. John Lee Kevin Moore emerged from behind the stage and began firing at one of the armed guards. The crowd dispersed, panicked. Keith joined in firing at the guards with his small, powerful gun. Three gunshots rang out from an unseen location, finishing off one of the scar-faced, black tactical gear-clad guards. Another guard tried to fire off his wire arm, like the android that attacked them at James the Millworker's house, but this time the massive man accidentally hogtied himself. John executed the other robot man, and Keith shoved his fingers into Stan's bullet wounds to plug the leaks, which jolted Stan back to consciousness. The restrained robot guard fired at Clark, putting bullets in his chest and arm. Stan mustered the strength to continue his speech, and time began to slow once again. The town was suspicious of the disappearances, but most of the ones gone were bad people. The whole saloon staff, the bartender, Miss Kitty, the piano player, there's a few gamblers, the town drunk, so they kept their heads down and went about their business. You know, but then some good people disappeared. A professor, a circuit judge, a rancher, a homesteader, the homesteader's wife. Then the preacher disappeared. The, the town freaked out and they hired a roaming cowboy named Cornelius Beans to kill their weird, paranoid figurehead. Silas and Mary Cole were never seen again. Neither was Cornelius Beans. That was the history of contention. When my daughter's name was Mia or Leah or Micah or Ben, but her name is Ari forever now and our history is different. Mine is now definite. Upon finishing his speech, Stan's body seemed to instantly turn itself inside out and blip out of existence. 
Clark lost his shit and charged the hogtied guard who had shot him. Clark unloaded his entire clip into this man's head while screaming. Metallic clangs and buzzes clanged and buzzed. Sparks sparkled and wires spilled out of the robot guard's head. The crowd had made a run for it, and the three officers stood in silence over the three massacred metal man bodies next to the crawfish boil in the casket. Keith made sure Ari's body was actually in the coffin. It was. Unsure of each other due to Kevin's presence, Keith's scars, and Clark's dated uniform, the three men held each other at gunpoint. Bubblegum tree. They lowered their guns. Keith admitted Kevin killed him but he owed Kevin's organization, the Glass family, for his life. Kevin asked Clark to speak to him alone for a moment without Keith. Keith went and occupied himself with the crawfish pot. Kevin explained he used to be John Lee Pettymore IV. John Lee Pettymore was more of a state of mind. Turned out John's daddy was lobotomized and had been Marvin Glass's head of security for a while. When John died, it seemed he was some kind of alien squid being or something. He sucked out of John's brain and entered his dad's body. Clark tried to clarify the squid being part. Kevin said he didn't really know. Maybe he was just mechanical. He just knew he left John's body and entered Kevin's body, the body of John Lee Pettymore III. John Lee Kevin Moore urged Clark to ask him something only John would know. Clark asked him about the little twins they lost to the goo in the suburbs, and John confirmed the story. As they embraced, Clark whispered into John's ear, Maggie's alive. Kevin didn't believe him and proposed that the chief was dead, but that there were other versions of each of them. Kevin explained he saw Clark broken and shattered on the ground back in the den of sin, but an older Clark came by, whispered some shit over the body, and the two disappeared in a flash of light. Clark lifted his shirt and showed John the hole through his chest where his heart should have been. Clark told John about waking up with his own heart in a bag and running into Maggie. He said he was now working for the Circle of Knowledge and that Maggie and Jim Cook were both also involved. Clark asked if John knew how Keith survived. John had seen some figures with funny-shaped sides drag Keith's body away. Marvin Glass told John they'd turn Keith into the new Charles. The Glass family performed some sort of upgrade procedure on all of their cronies. Clark asked if John was metally now. Through his bullet holes, they could both see metal lining in the layers of flesh. The two looked back at Keith to see him dipping his hand straight into the boiling pot of crawfish. John walked up to Keith and whispered in his ear, I know what you did to my Smokies, and punched him in the gut. Keith realized Kevin was John and gave him a hug. A big smile spread across Keith's face. John stopped him and explained he had learned this was all some kind of business play for Marvin Glass. Marvin wanted to demolish contention so he could have the land. They've got to save the town. Clark shared it may be bigger than just the town. He recounted the vision he saw, barely keeping it together. Clark explained the Circle of Knowledge is a group he worked for now that tried to keep the thing he saw in the vision from becoming a reality. Part of that mission apparently included killing Stan Manstein. That had really fucked Keith over. The Glass family rebuilt him and tasked him with bringing Stan back alive. Additionally, Drew had been calling Keith to tell him to get the hell away from contention. 
unfortunate because Clark had planned on grabbing his guns and things from his house and moving shop up to the mill on the other side of the city. Keith mused that he hoped the helmet and radio were still in the evidence room at the contention police department. They realized the gun and the camera now likely belonged to Marvin Glass. John thought about it, put his hands up to his head, and his eyes went white as he looked elsewhere. John, as your eyes roll backward, your vision goes dark. Images begin flashing through your mind, just snippets, moments, and you try to keep up as the speed of this sequence waxes and wanes. You see a motel safe, shiny, black, and closed. You see the sign for Bean's Pond, the little pond behind Chief Maggie Cook's house in contention. You see a television. It's blinking with different letters on it. R, S, T, L, N, E. You see a small clearing in the woods. The ground is scorched. In a dark room lit by various electronics and machines, you see a massive, shiny metal sphere, 20 feet tall, with silvery arms extending from either side. A tube connects this gargantuan ball to a machine below. The machine begins whirring, and you see a small metal sphere, roughly one inch in diameter, begin moving up through the tubing into the larger arm version of itself. As this happens, a vast circle opens up in the ceiling and a disorienting amount of light and sound pours into this room, revealing text painted on the back wall that says the same thing you hear violently chanted by an unseen crowd. Planet Juggernaut. The scene changes again and you see Marvin Glass standing at his desk in the grand room you recently stood in as Kevin alongside Rosemary. Marvin is holding the odd camera with glass tubes, closely inspecting it, tapping its lit red luminaire. On his desk are two file folders splayed open entitled Clark Bishop and Keith Vigna, Contention Police Officers. You can see in Keith's file are various clippings about the Beans family, the tragic accidental deaths of William and Lena, Keith's parents, the takeover of the family business by Ferguson. In Clark's file, there's a newspaper article about the murderer who killed Clark Bishop's parents, Anne Love. There's a mugshot of a woman smiling a cold, vacant smile behind asymmetrical bangs covering one of her eyes. And written in Sharpie underneath the mugshot, it says in all caps, KAREN. In the mid-morning sunlight, in the wake of a funeral gone horribly awry, Keith and Clark watched John's eyes, which had rolled into the back of his head, return to normal. John believed he'd developed the second sight in his transition from John to Kevin, or perhaps he'd had it all along. He relayed everything he saw sans the planet juggernaut bit. Keith recalled his brother's watch was in his safe at Hotel Motel. When Keith had put on the watch, he felt like he was on some alternate plane and knew he needed to take it off. Clark asked Keith if it was as though the ground were made of light. No. It was more like, in his mind, he was seeing different stuff. It was hard to decipher what was real and what wasn't. John asked if Bean's Pond meant anything to anyone. When he thought about the objects, those were the things he saw. Clark made the connection that the letters John saw flashing on the TV are the letters they give you for the final puzzle in Wheel of Fortune. 
when Clark woke up with the hole, he had a bag with him. In the bag was what he thought was his heart, and next to that was another bag that had those letters in it. John informed them they are not the first group of three to try to combat this kind of stuff. Before John, Clark, and Keith, there was a group called KSL. Kevin, John Lee Pettymore IV's adopted father, who he now inhabited the body of, a man named Kyle, unknown, and a woman called Karen, also known as Ann Love. John told Clark he knew Ann Love had been the one to kill his parents. He didn't know why, but Marvin Glass turned the group against itself, and Karen was the only one to get away. Marvin made Kevin shoot Kyle. He was looking for the metal sphere, and he apparently already had one in his possession. Everyone wants these spheres. John had one when he arrived at the Glass family compound. Marvin Glass had one, and he wanted to collect more and learn how they work. They realized the one John had was now likely in the possession of Marvin Glass. In John's vision, he had just seen one of those spheres, but it was massive, gargantuan. It had arms and a little tube coming out of the bottom, and up that tube, he saw one of the small spheres go. A huge light opened in the ceiling like it was opening to allow this thing to come through, and the wall behind it read, Planet Juggernaut, like the bedding stubs they found in John Peter's house and storage unit. Keith remembered that when he had the watch on, it clouded his thoughts and made him feel like he was going insane, but one of the feelings he had was wet dirt and grass on his fingers, and he saw a metal door slightly buried that read, Here lies the beans, scientists beyond measure, saviors of the world. Keith was positive somewhere along the beans' bloodline was something he didn't know. Clark reminded Keith it was someone related to Keith that came in and solved the town's Silas and Mary Cole problem back in the day. Keith didn't know where Cornelius Beans fit in with his family being scientists, and he didn't know where to find that metal door. But he felt the door was real, and maybe there's something inside it they needed to find. One of the last things Clark remembered was being in Glass's office, and it sounded an awful lot like Glass hired Keith to kill his own brother, Ferguson Beans. Keith had even asked where the money was. Since they're all working together again, Keith didn't see the point in hiding it from them anymore. Keith didn't know it was Marvin Glass hiring him to do it. He was approached by his niece. Keith explained that he'd hated his brother Fergie since they were little boys. So when this opportunity arose, he jumped at it. The agents, Kennedy, McKinley, and Harrison, had tasked them with, quote, neutralizing the threat, and they were supposed to call a phone number. It'd been about 48 hours since they'd seen the agents, and the agents had given them a 48-hour deadline, so it'd be right about now that they'd be receiving a call back at the contingent police department. Keith tried giving Drew a call, but it went straight to voicemail. John pointed out the Glass family might think Keith is still one of them, and they definitely think Kevin John is still one of them as well. And while Keith may have failed at his mission of bringing Stan Manstein back, he wouldn't have to infiltrate the glass building. He could return under the guise of bringing in the guy who killed Stan Manstein, that being Clark. Then all three of them would be inside if things go awry. 
The plan was to Chewbacca Clark and use that farce to get close enough to kill Marvin Glass. They decided to call the number the agents left them on the way to the Glass family compound. Suddenly, with an erupting shriek, a massive creature materialized on top of a nearby mausoleum. It was a six and a half or seven foot tall creature with long limbs wearing a black suit over its gaunt frame covered in translucent skin. This thing looked Clark Bishop in the eyes and screeched, Hello, subject 152251819551818, please add me the book. Please. The figure stared and stuck out one of its overtly long arms. Clark's gun was immediately trained on the mysterious figure. John reached out a hand in greeting from 20 feet away. The creature's arm was long, but not that long. Keith ran behind the closest mausoleum and hid as he pulled out his gun. Clark felt an internal struggle, but managed to overcome it, and he continued to hold his gun steady at the creature. Please, I would not like to ask again. Please give me the book. Clark didn't know what book the creature was talking about. The thing asked Kevin Lee John Pettermore III his name. Kevin John responded in truth that his name was Kevin John and that it was a long story. He asked the creature its name. The creature said its name was 43629 and reiterated it was therefore the book. Kevin Lee Pettymore III said again that none of them knew which book it was talking about. The creature claimed it could feel the book was nearby. Clark looked around for Keith and noticed him behind the mausoleum, just as Keith took a shot at the creature with his small, powerful gun. The bullet blasted through the creature's arm, but as it did, the arm merely dissipated and began to slowly reform. Before Keith could smell the smoke from his gunshot, the creature was standing in front of him with a hand on Keith's throat, holding him up against the outside of the mausoleum. It was as if they had all been standing still as the creature walked casually towards him, but it moved at an impossible speed. It was probably like what the crowd saw them doing earlier during Stan's speech at the funeral. It asked Keith his name as it continued holding him by the neck, and Keith responded immediately with his name, without ever making the decision to do so. He answered the creature's next questions, too. He was here for the funeral, and he was shooting because he was scared. The thing slowly placed Keith back on the ground and commanded that he not be scared. And with that, Keith wasn't scared. The creature told them it was only there for one thing, and it would leave as soon as it had the book. John told Clark to give it the book. Clark stuttered and stammered nervously, insisting he didn't know what book it wanted. He did not have a book, and all he had were the clothes on his back and a gun. The creature looked around frantically, muttered to itself, and began freaking out, unable to understand why Clark didn't have the book. Keith searched Ari's coffin for a book. All he found was Ari's corpse, and all he achieved was upsetting the already confused old lady who'd been left there on her own, unable to leave the funeral quickly in her wheelchair. Clark asked the creature to describe the book, but the creature only responded that it was necessary for it to take the book from him because Clark's time with the book had come to an end. They did not want him using the book any further. The creature insisted the book was there and it needed to bring it back. 
Keith started shooting the thing again, it dissipated fully into smoke and ceased to be there. Keith lost his shit and attacked Clark paranoid and afraid. They eventually calmed him down with smooth words and quick slaps. When he snapped out of it, Keith wondered aloud if that thing reminded them of Marvin Glass. Conversation circled back to the book. Clark mentioned he had previously encountered a strange book at Jim Cook's house. Jim Cook was in the circle of knowledge, and Clark had found a particular leather-bound book of his that was, quote, freaky deaky. He also described this book as, quote, extremely grimoire-ish, and it had the symbol of the circle of knowledge on the front. It was possible that this was the book the creature had wanted, but he hadn't taken it. Keith asked if Clark opened this book. Clark reiterated its freaky deaky nature. He could only open it to the last page. It was held shut by some unseen force. Keith asked if he meant like magnets, to which Clark agreed. There, on the final page, Clark had seen a drawing of a hooded figure with light coming out of its mouth. Written over and over and over on top of that, covering the whole page, it read, It is only through death that he may rise again. Clark went on and explained it was some kind of sacred text within the circle of knowledge, something to do with the revelation of the Overseer. Clark thought the Overseer was maybe a good guy who lays peace on the world or something like that. John remembered when he saw old Clark, he was wearing robes, and he and dead Clark disappeared into a bright light that came from his mouth. Keith was confused about what he meant by old Clark and dead Clark. John unhelpfully clarified the Clark that brought this Clark back to life. Keith defended that this was the first he was hearing about it, and they seemed to already know a lot more than he did. All John saw was an older version of Clark show up, that light came out of his mouth, and then he reached into regular Clark, and they both disappeared. That made total sense to Keith, and they all agreed. John suddenly remembered he'd arrived with Rosemary. Looking around, John didn't see Rosemary, but he did see two city police officers headed their way. He warned the others they should skedaddle, but they all kept talking, failed to escape notice, and were told to freeze. Clark turned, still with gun in hand, and told the officers everything was fine, that they were contention PD. The city cops said they were responding because shots were fired. Keith said it was a 21-gun salute and called the officers, quote, motherfuckers. The city officers brought out notebooks to take statements. Kevin John then approached, pulled out a dirty dog grooming loyalty card, and suggested the officers not bother. He was with Mr. Glass. They whispered to one another and quickly apologized. They started to ask Kevin to apologize on their behalf to Mr. Glass, but quickly changed their minds, covering the names on their badges and turning away before they hoofed it out of there. John shared that the loyalty card opened the door to the Den of Sin, you know, the place where they were held and forced into those cage fights. He had seen a bunch of rowdy degenerates use theirs to open an entrance in the ground of an alley. There were still a bunch of android bodies lying around, and no one had actually put the casket in the tomb. Together, they picked up the coffin of Ari Manstein. As they entered the open mausoleum, they heard a voice. Clark recognized the voice the quickest because it sounded so much like his own. Little sparks of light could be seen in the darkness. They seemed to be ignited by the steady chanting which echoed throughout the room. 
The flickering light illuminated a piece of parchment held by an old Clark Bishop wearing a dark cloak which covered almost all of his face. A light began to emanate from his mouth. The words he chanted, ignited, lifted from the page in front of him, and danced in a circle above them. His lifted hands were cut open and bled out onto the floor around them. John and Clark instinctively dropped their support of the coffin, leaving Keith as the sole bearer of the weight. The coffin hit the ground. Ari's corpse plopped limply out and onto the blood-soaked floor of the cold and dusty crypt. The three of them were surrounded by this magically sashaying fire. It covered them in a warm, somewhat familiar light. The light should have been comforting, but Clark was overwhelmed with the urge to leap at the older version of himself. He lunged, grabbed two handfuls of an empty cloak, and smashed his face against the back wall of the mausoleum. The boys woke up with a shock through their bodies. It was dark and cold and smelled sweet and savory. There was a pool of blood. In it rested the body of Ari Manstein, half hanging out of her broken coffin. John Lee Kevin Moore was in black tactical gear. Keith wore a tight orange polo with big coral blue shorts and boat shoes. Clark donned a vintage contention police uniform. They felt pain on their chests, on their backs, and on the bottom of their left feet, and in the palm of their dominant hands. Branded into each of these body parts were first names. Their chests each read Marvin. Their backs, Drew. Their left soles, Maggie. And their dominant palms, Tildy. Under the burned name of Maggie, on the bottom of Clark's left foot, the skin had been eaten away in a very particular pattern, a circle surrounded by six smaller circles. Clark went mad and rushed John Lee Kevin Moore, screaming. John quickly drew his gun and shot Clark in the leg. They all agreed on a few things. They were scared and confused. They didn't know what the names on their bodies meant, and they needed to see a doctor. At the clinic, the officers billed the visit to the First Church of Contention. On the way to Jim Cook's house, Keith called the number Agent Kennedy left behind. He identified the officers involved, disclosed the incursion had not been stopped, but that the incident had been covered up, and asked to speak to the FBI officers instead of a recording. In Jim's house, there were papers and binders everywhere. Clark grabbed the book they had discussed, the one with the Circle of Knowledge logo on it. The only page they could open to was marked with a girthy wooden bookmark. The page read, It is only through death that he may rise again, over and over and over, behind the image of a hooded figure with light shining from its mouth. Clark then revealed an envelope containing a letter from Jim Cook. His letter's intent was to, quote, refute the revelation of the overseer, which it called, quote, the scratches of a broken man. The letter ordered the immediate reassignment of all members of the disposal unit. The header of the letter read, faith through knowledge is just called knowledge. The other interesting items Clark had found included a ring, smooth and silver with a little plateau on top. Keith put the ring on, and when slipped on his finger, the ring glowed and revealed a familiar symbol, an M 
made of four double helices. Keith made the ring into a necklace with his shoelace and wore it. A drop of vodka hit Clark's nose. It dripped from the ceiling above him. The boys went upstairs but couldn't find a room where the vodka drip would have come from. Clark put his ear to the wall where that room should have been and he heard static. Unable to find the door to this hidden room, Keith kicked a hole through the wall where the room would be. Keith landed on the other side of the wall, pushed through by his colleagues and covered in debris. Inside, they found a small living room setup. A chair with an end table faced a TV VCR unit that sat atop a pile of thick books. A desk and a chair were pressed up against one wall, and a handle of vodka had tipped over on the floor nearby. Its contents soaked the carpet that barely covered a makeshift floor. Clark noted a proper door in this room that led into the upstairs hallway. Static played on the television and illuminated the titles of the tomes underneath, textbooks on physics and quantum mechanics. On the end table sat a small vial of clear liquid, a scalpel, and a box of tissues. Keith twisted the top off the vial and wafted it into his nose, but smelled nothing and suffered no ill effects. He slipped the vial into one of his spacious pockets. The TV VCR unit had no input cable or antenna. A tape labeled Bishop's WOF was discovered inside the unit. It contained an episode of Wheel of Fortune, a special couples episode on which Clark's parents were contestants. They had just been married and were hoping to win money for their honeymoon. On the desk were three folders and an envelope. The first folder contained a large stack of papers regarding Operation Stapler. The Double Helix M logo appeared on the second page above the word Myriad. Keith flipped to the index and gleaned that it was the work of someone who had been tasked with rewriting an existing program put in place to create androids. This respec operation aimed to cut costs and sell to private companies. John googled Myriad, and the screen briefly wobbled before returning to normal with no clear results. The second folder was entitled Operation Hole Puncher. The title page included the name and symbol of the Circle of Knowledge. This folder contained a list of companies, mostly nonprofits, think tanks, charities, and universities. The third folder referred to Operation Three Ring Binder and was empty except for a dirty dog grooming key fob tucked into the pocket. Clark's parents did well on the show, eventually making it to the bonus round. As the final puzzle was displayed, Clark's mom turned to his dad and said, we were already given the best letters. They solved the final puzzle and won the prize, a honeymoon. Clark noticed the tape in the VCR showed a great deal of wear, like it had been played many times. John opened the envelope and found the symbol of the circle of knowledge at the top. It said, Faith through knowledge is just called knowledge. Fellow keepers, it is with great sadness that I write to you. I fear a change is coming. 
I cannot be certain, but I suspect there's one among us scheming with treacherous intent. I have recently grown a tail. He is not particularly skilled in going unnoticed. He is an odd little man with round glasses on a fat face with no hair and no chin. He is a journalist fired for trying to write an expose on Marvin Glass. Stay alert. Step carefully. We are being watched. Signed, Jim Cook. Several individual letters in this letter were over or underlined, and the men quickly found the name Maggie Cook was coded into the message. They inferred Jim thought his daughter might be the traitor inside the circle of knowledge. The officers discussed the order of Jim's letters, the connection between Chief Cook and Harold Dorsey, the resurrection of Maggie, and the lurking horror she'd revealed to Clark through the Xenonematode. The men didn't come to any clear conclusions, but agreed Marvin Glass was the most addressable threat they had. With that, they resolved to storm the gates of the Glass compound using Clark as a false hostage. On the way, John mentioned the Glass Company card for Large Eddie's Gun Emporium in Kevin's pocket. Large Eddie himself kicked open the door to the back, where he kept all the cool guns. The renegade officers equipped themselves with a sampler of grenades and firearms and drove to the secret entrance of the Den of Sin in the heart of the city. There, as John pulled out the dirty dog grooming loyalty key fob, the grate gave way beneath the men's feet and they plummeted into darkness below. As they fell downward into darkness, the former cop slowed to a feeling of weightlessness before being abruptly confronted with a bright light, huge words in a spray-painted font, and a deafening voiceover saying the same, Welcome to the Scrap Pit. A video screen showed them an enormous glass arena with hundreds of screaming spectators and a shadowy form began to emerge. But before this person could even hit the lights of the arena, a giant metal tentacle erupted into view, gripping the humanoid being and ripping it out of frame. The screen faded to black and they found themselves in an oily obsidian room with an entrance to the scrap pit and a separate door guarded by two fishmen armed with scythes. On seeing the officers, the guards moved to let them through this door. Keith and John marched Clark through and into an elevator as if he were their prisoner. The elevator door opened and they saw five malnourished children, along with Oz Mayhem Wolf, passed out on the floor, attended to by grandmotherly old women in identical clothes. These women poured a liquid into the mouths of the unconscious bodies. Keith and John both saw a ghostly black dog and red lion diving in and out of the bodies. One of the women entered the elevator with our heroes inside, and it continued moving. She introduced herself as Ursula and explained her role in preparing the sacrifices. The boys exited the elevator into a massive, foggy room that contained a network of catwalks over dark, green, murky water. The fishiness was pungent. Rusty, moss-covered chains dangled large hooks between the catwalks, and some of these hooks suspended prisoners above the water. 
Doug Jacobs in the body of Agent Trent Chad was one of these unlucky folks. When he saw them, he freaked out at their return from the grave. This entire chamber was seemingly patrolled by one fishman, and Francis Beans could be heard questioning Kathy and George Piston deeper into the cavernous space. Francis asked Kathy Piston about silver spheres as well as the residue and outbreak in contention while dipping a clearly distressed George Piston slowly into the murky water. Kevin John got Francis's attention and told her that they'd brought Clark as a prisoner to torture and that Marvin wanted to see her right then. She was not convinced to leave immediately, so Keith resorted to his backup plan. He tried to whack her with his heavy metal hand. He missed, and Francis threw him into the water. She was about to run for it, but Kevin John persuaded her to stay for more of her beloved torturing. At that moment, it occurred to Keith he might be swimming with the giant creature that ate his little fish friend, Peter Dieter. Keith freaked out and began to climb up George Piston erupting up out of the water just under Keith's boat shoes the massive creature swallowed both Keith and George and resubmerged into the vast murky pool Clark John and Francis watched as the water began to calm in front of them Francis beans unaffected by the apparent death of her uncle prepared to hang Clark up for some torturing which prompted a failed sneak attack from John. Francis countered by pushing the hook directly through John's shoulder. Clark kicked her right over the edge into the water and she clanged her head on the railing as she went. The soon-to-be corpse of Francis Beans floated face down in the water. Keith Vigna and George Piston were inside an enormous creature. They tried to claw and push their way out as the disgusting, burning ooze inside the beast slowly digested them. Keith used George Piston as a human shield and blasted out of this fish monster's side with a frag grenade. While gazing down at the floating body of Francis Beans, Clark and John saw a flash of light deep under the water, followed by bubbles and a gasping Keith Vigna, skin covered in burns. They pulled him out and Keith broke the news of George's death to Kathy in a typically kind and sensitive manner, sparing no details. The boys decided to leave Frances Beans to her fate and continued to question the hanging Kathy Piston about why she was supplying people to the circle of knowledge. Clark admitted he already knew why and told Kathy he was working with Maggie. Kathy agreed to help the team take down Marvin Glass if they just explained where Leo was. They told her he disappeared from this plane of existence and they blamed it on Marvin Glass. Even though she was awful human trafficking scum, her crack shot ability was a necessary addition. John and Keith pulled down the hanging Doug Jacobs in the body of Agent Trent Chad. Clark discreetly asked Kathy her opinion on Maggie. She said Jim's daughter was rougher around the edges than her dad, but Kathy had been too busy at the hospital to pay too close attention. Clark told her the truth about Leo's last hours and about how he had killed Julie. On the metal catwalk above the hazy greenish water stood Clark Bishop 
John Lee Pettymore the fourth in the body of his father John Lee Pettymore the third aka Kevin Keith Vigna Kathy Piston and Doug Jacobs in the body of agent Trent Chad their goal leave this enormous dank prison alive the only exit they could see a closed elevator door the issue fishmen in brown jumpsuits with mouths full of human teeth and scythes and those human teeth mouths they were singing this song's purpose was revealed when the catwalk was dragged down into the water by a massive version of the fishman, an enormous creature with a huge pus-leaking wound in its side and a hunger in its eyes. The monster dug into Keith's chest and ripped its claws through his skin, revealing metal insides. The pain was too much for Keith Vigna to bear, and he passed out on the metal walkway. Keith, in the darkness, you see a woman wearing old-timey clothing. She looks very normal, except for the hole right in the middle of her head. Regardless of how she turns to look either way, you can see right through the middle of her head, and she is walking toward you. As she walks, her clothes change multiple times, as if she is in an unnatural fashion show that's moving forward in time, decade by decade. She pulls out a Zippo lighter, and as it hits the ground, you see the house of Chief Maggie Cook go up in flames. You saw this happen in the front yard, but this time, right now, you see it from the backyard. The fire spreads and explodes toward you, over you, through you, and you turn around to see these flames ignite the pond, Bean's Pond, and immediately the water evaporates. Looking down into a dry basin filled with fish flopping their final flops, you see your brother, Ferguson Beans, crouched over a hatch in the ground, wearing a cowboy hat and spurs, and the watch your father, William, gave him. You look down on your wrist, and the watch is there. You look up, and the pond is filled with water and animals, and Tildy B. Mitchell comes walking up out of the water toward you, and darkness fills your vision once more. Outside of Keith's unconscious dreams, the fight continued. The water was still murky, the air was still heavy, the fishman's teeth were still unsettling, and the elevator door had still yet to open. Bullets whizzed around the enormous prison, flashbangs erupted and flashed. Doug Jacobs in the body of Agent Trent Chad was decapitated by the scythe of a fishy humanoid. Kathy Piston likely saved all of their lives with her non-stop firearms proficiency. Grenades destroyed entire sections of the catwalk and persuaded the enormous fish monster to dive back down below the surface. One of the human-sized bipedal amphibians lodged its scythe into the skull of Kathy Piston. John was swallowed whole by the big daddy fish monster, but he swam out through the hole Keith had previously made. He saw another creature make an escape as well, a little toy-sized human body with the head of a fish. However, an unseen force suddenly grabbed John and dragged his body down to the bottom of the tank, up against the glass of this gargantuan aquarium. John was forced 
to stare directly into the unblinking eyes of Marvin Glass. And as John Lee Kevinmore, the thirst's lungs filled with water, Marvin Glass smiled. Clark stood on a wet, partially destroyed catwalk with Keith in his arms with nowhere to escape to across from the last standing fishman. The Humamphibian swung wide and Clark stabbed it to death with its own scythe. He saw bubbles in the water before the two halves of the enormous creature, as well as bits of George Piston, floated to the surface. Clark broke down in tears as a god who had failed his followers. The elevator arrived. Clark dragged the unconscious body of Keith Vigna halfway in to block the elevator door before going to see if he could find John's corpse. He did not. In a desperate search for closure, Clark stripped down to his tidy whities and took the scythe down into the water with him, diving into the disgusting murk. At the bottom and side of this massive aquarium, he found John Lee Kevinmore the Thirst's body pressed against the glass by an unseen influence. Looking for the source of the force, he saw Marvin Glass standing in his office on the other side of this glass. Marvin shook a picture at Rosemary. Clark couldn't find a pulse, and John's body wouldn't budge. Then, he remembered Keith's small but incredibly powerful gun, swam back up, fetched it from Keith's shorts, and still, in his soaking wet tidy whities Clark fired into the aquarium wall over and over until it broke, sending a tidal wave of murky green wet into Marvin's office. However, Marvin calmly lifted himself and Rosemary up atop the water, and made direct eye contact with Clark. With the slightest gesture, Marvin then moved the impotently enraged Clark down from the catwalk of the adjacent room. Helpless and paralyzed, Clark was placed in front of glass, compelled to stand motionless on top of the water. Keith woke up in darkness, jammed halfway into an elevator door. Thankfully, his little friend Peter Dieter was there to heal his shredded chest with its weird saliva. Keith looked down and saw the scene in Marvin's office. Marvin looked back, but Keith managed to scurry away. Unfortunately, Peter was dragged away by Marvin. The elevator doors closed and took Keith to a lab full of computers, math, and electrical shit with a sort of interrogation window into a side room that was completely painted in blood and viscera. The tall, awkward, mad scientist was working here in the main lab. Keith broke the news of Peter Dieter's likely death, which bummed her out. He explained the scene he saw in Marvin's aquarium water-filled office from the elevator. Poking around this lab, Keith saw a bunch of VHS tapes labeled with names, and he asked to see one. The scientists obliged, and they watched a malnourished child in the bloody room stand behind a desk with a small metal sphere on it. The child picked up the sphere. The sphere promptly ripped out his spine and entered his body, which then began slamming itself repeatedly against the wall, much to the amusement of the scientist. She was very surprised to hear that Keith had seen someone handling a sphere. 
While they walked down to Marvin's office, he told her about the black Nike bag. When they opened the large, strange obsidian doors to Glass's office, water erupted out and into the hallway, sweeping the two of them away, though their bodies were held by Marvin's unnatural ability. Without effort, they moved through the water, into the office, and up to the little meeting between Marvin, Rosemary, Peter, and Clark. Glass held a Polaroid photo and demanded explanation. It depicted Clark Bishop and Keith Vigna, alongside Kevin, in a world where everything was made out of darkness except the ground, which was made of light. Clark was rendered unable to move by Marvin Glass's unnatural grasp. In his catatonic state, he witnessed an odd discussion between Marvin and Rosemary. Marvin showed Rosemary the picture and asserted that something was wrong. You gotta send me over there. I don't know how, but we gotta figure out something. Suddenly, Marvin perked up. He looked up past the former confines of his office where the elevator door beeped, unable to close due to its sensors and Keith Vigna's body. Marvin held out his hand. He seemed confused when a small creature landed in his palm. Peter Dieter, with the softball-sized fish head on a human body the size of a Barbie doll, chatted and chatted with Glass who glared at Rosemary while alluding that her job title was in jeopardy and could be available soon. Marvin's face shifted like he smelled something or experienced some other unknown sensation. He reached out again and out of the water stood Keith Vigna and the white lab coat clad scientist, maniacal hair now dripping, and her eyes lit up with excitement to see Peter Dieter still intact. Keith and the tiny fishman creature greeted each other warmly before Marvin shut him down with the flick of a hand. Peter's large fish eyes stared blankly past his new friend as Clark's normal human eyes blinked back to his unbelievable reality. Marvin Glass asked the two former police officers about the strange picture, and they felt unnaturally compelled to answer to the best of their abilities. The picture came from the camera sitting on Marvin's desk. It shows things that aren't there. They thought the pictures were from a different dimension or the past or something. Marvin asked how many pictures they took. There was the one with the torches and the old-timey clothing, one with John Peters and oily black stocks, and another of a guy with tribal tattoos kneeling before a cowboy with his hand up to hide his face from the camera. Marvin asked Clark to confirm the part about the man with tribal tattoos running down both arms to his fingertips, and Rosemary dove for the gun. As she grabbed it, Marvin reached down and flung the sphere at her from off the desk. Multiple shiny limbs extended from the small sphere, slammed into the desk for leverage, and slung its silver round frame at its target, Rosemary. One of its appendages sliced into the soft tissue on the back of Rosemary's neck. Another snapped her head forward. A third metal tendril reached in, gripped the top of Rosemary's spine, and ripped her entire spinal cord out of her body in one swift motion. This ball promptly forced itself into the now vacant spinal column of this human being. 
the new Rosemary had a crazed look in her eyes. She blew her nose into her hand, slammed the mucus into the empty chamber of this odd gun, and without aiming, squeezed the trigger. An almost blinding flash of light illuminated the entirety of Marvin's enormous, flooded office, and then, as if she had never been, the body of Rosemary was gone. (coughs) Marvin Glass roared in anger, and where Rosemary just stood, they could now see a pool of viscous black sludge enveloped a placid body. Her limbs seemed to peacefully fold into the ooze, becoming one with the sentient mass of goop that then slid across the water. Marvin reached out a hand, grabbed the goo, and hurled it downward into the murky water below, and a strange noise filled the air, like when a tube TV is turned on, a noise that could almost be felt in your head or in the back of your throat. Marvin pressed the two petrified men on their knowledge of this black substance. How many times had they seen it? Had it taken people? Did they know how to contain it? Was it running rampant through contention? Next, he questioned them about the small silver spheres. Keith explained that the contention PD had a bag, and when they put the silver ball in the bag, it disappeared. Marvin was curious about this. Would anything in the bag disappear? Keith admitted they never tried anything other than the metal spheres. Marvin commented on the plural Keith used and asked how many silver balls they'd come into contact with. Keith said they'd only made the one disappear, but another was found embedded in the skull of a severed head they'd pulled out of some storage units, adding that one of the contention PD touched the silver ball. Marvin assumed this was their co-worker who was recently gunned down and ripped apart. Keith explained that John Lee Pettymore IV, the man who held the sphere previously, was inside Kevin's body. Marvin's eyes widened as did Clark's. Clark thought Marvin had something to do with the body switching. Skeptical of all of this information, Marvin extended a hand downward and pulled the body of John Lee Kevin Moore III up from out of the water. With one hand holding Kevin's body, he used the other to twist open Kevin's head like an avocado. Sitting inside his head like the pit of an avocado was a small, silver sphere. Marvin ripped Kevin's body in half right down the middle. Where a spinal cord should have been, there was nothing. Since Clark and Keith were now going to be a part of some heavy entertainment, Marvin offered to answer a few questions. Clark immediately asked what the silver balls are. Marvin has been doing research on them and has come to very few conclusions, though they are not from this realm. Marvin was working to secure their destruction. Keith asked where he found the balls. One had been brought to him a long time ago by two men he was seeking out. They, along with one other person, had stolen something from him. Clark pointed out that when Marvin threw the sphere at Rosemary, he was aware it did something. Marvin confirmed he knew the spheres tended to enter the person they touched, but Rosemary still shot the gun after being taken over by the sphere. Did it not work? Marvin admitted he didn't suspect the entity would do anything other than try to kill itself as it normally did. Keith asked if Marvin knew anyone with the previously described tribal tattoos. 
That was one of his sons, Jermaine Glass. Keith asked why Marvin wanted to destroy the spheres. Glass saw the balls as competition. If he couldn't figure out how to utilize them, he wanted them eradicated. Glass was in search of as much power as possible in an attempt to obtain control over this domain. Finally, Clark asked what Marvin was. Glass said he was not one of them, rather one of many who were in control, who ran things. But he had become bored, left the bureaucracy, and had been battling Myriad ever since. Then Marvin snapped his fingers, and Keith and Clark were unconscious. They awoke in a room with walls covered in every piece of weaponry and gadget imaginable. A cage like the ones they'd been trapped in above the Den of Sin appeared at a darkened window. Oz Mayhem Wolf climbed out, said it seemed they were going to fight together, and excitedly grabbed his preferred combat gear. A timer began counting down, water began filling the room, and a circle opened above them. A disorienting amount of light and sound hit as an unseen crowd chanted the name of this group's opponent. Planet Juggernaut. In a dark room lit by various electronics and machines, there sat a massive shiny metal sphere, 20 feet tall, with silvery arms extending from either side. A tube connected this gargantuan ball to a machine below. The machine began whirring and a small metal sphere roughly one inch in diameter began moving up through the tubing into the larger armed version of itself. As this happened, John Lee Pettymore IV felt alive again. John felt his consciousness extend itself throughout his new body, this colossal monument to destruction. A vast circle opened up in the ceiling above, and a disorienting amount of light and sound poured into this dark room, which revealed text painted on the back wall that read the same thing heard violently chanted by the unseen crowd, Planet Juggernaut. John gave his new hands a tentative punch together and dug in his foot. Clark Bishop, Keith Vigna, and Oz Mayhem Wolf walked up the stairs and into the lights and sounds of the arena. This colossal room was circular and funneled downward at least 10 stories. Thousands of seats surrounded a massive covered cage, 50 yards across, with a bubble-looking rounded top on it entirely made of a crystal-clear material. Aggressively loud dubstep blared. Strobe lights made the entire experience otherworldly as green and red and blue lasers swung wildly around the room, like a futuristic Las Vegas filled with the spirit of all of Vin Diesel's films if they were tarred and feathered, but the tar was replaced by Red Bull and the feathers replaced by cocaine. An enormous logo in the center of the arena floor read in all caps, THE SCRAP PIT. And all around the scrap pit, in a massive circle, were the repeated words, Planet Juggernaut. A gigantic circular jumbotron hung above the bubble, blinked a countdown timer, and flashed the words, 
Oz Mayhem Wolf and Friends versus Planet Juggernaut. The exceptional voices of Mick and Nick Nichols echoed through the pandemonium and announced an evening of blood sport the audience would never forget. The floor opened and Planet Juggernaut slowly rose into the scrap pit to an explosion of roars from the eager audience. The sight of the gigantic shiny metal sphere 20 feet wide with two metallic arms extending from either side knocked something loose in Clark. He lunged straight at Oz Mayhem Wolf in a frenzy and tried to rip his head off. A confused Oz Wolf ran away from his antagonistic teammate but clumsily tripped over and fell to the ground. Planet Juggernaut sent lasers blazing from its eyes at Keith Vigna, who jumped out of the way with his cool jumping boots. Mid-air, Keith shot Planet Juggernaut with a saw launcher and embedded a circular saw in the giant robot ball's midsection. Planet Juggernaut propelled itself into the air and landed on Oz Wolf as it slammed Clark down with its powerful metal hand. Keith Spider-Maned up the scrap pit wall with suction gloves and froze Planet Juggernaut's propeller with a nitro thrower. A crushed Oz crawled out from beneath the burnished behemoth, which sat eerily still as it clearly charged up something somehow even more sinister. Keith tried to release his suction cups from the dome, but his feet were stuck. He looked into the appetent audience and saw a short young woman and tall old man wearing suits, ties, and ill-fitting windbreakers. He recognized Agents Kennedy and McKinley as they made their way through the crowd. Clark launched himself up onto Planet Juggernaut, which rapidly spun its exterior shell while hovering just above the battleground in order to hit the pit rolling at a quick clip toward its slow foes. This squashed Clark, but absolutely obliterated Oz Mayhem Wolf into a pile of organs and teeth, which sat in a dark red paste. As Nick and Mick Nichols discussed the mayhem scene and lost, a small hoover poked out of Planet Juggernaut to suck up and collect the loose teeth of Oz Wolf. An artificial wind began to pick up in the corner of the scrap pit and headed toward Clark Bishop, who fired his high-powered sniper rifle into the giant ball robot while thinking about his friend and co-worker, John Lee Pettymore IV. Planet Juggernaut grabbed Clark with his extendo arms and Mickey Mouse gloves. It pulled Clark close and attempted to speak. Clark! <laughs> It's me! It's John! I don't want to fight you! We've got to find a way out of here and into Marvin Glass's booth! Can we kill him together? Mick and Nick Nichols cut to a video segment incorrectly called Fighting Pro Tips from Alfred and Jermaine Glass. The Jumbotron showed a dark room with a single light on. A young man in the shadows of the room huddled in the field position and stammered about a gun, someone disappearing, it coming after him, and a missing girl before the feed was cut off and the attention turned back to inside the scrap pit. 
In the clutches of the speaking planet juggernaut, Clark's mind snapped and he pleaded for help from Planet Jonernaut, who was focused on a young, bald, fit man with sunken, intense eyes and a black t-shirt and jeans. Agent Billy Harrison was headed toward Marvin Glass's box. Planet Jonernaut threw himself with all its might into the dome above the scrap pit. The crystal clear material, considered indestructible by all who had fought inside its bubble previously, shattered. Its pieces floated down into the pit like a firework. The crowd scattered for their lives, perhaps to add fuel to the confusion fire to aid in an escape. Keith Vigna sprayed his nitro thrower into the panicking mob. Suddenly, a rushing cascade of murky water containing different kinds of fish and a few humanoid figures blasted out from Marvin Glass's theater box. In the deluge were four flushed folks, agents Kennedy, McKinley, and Billy Harrison, as well as a body wearing a tuxedo with gaunt skin stretched across long bones, Marvin Glass. All four were washed into the middle of the scrap pit. Clark unloaded three rounds into Marvin and triggered a deafening roar. <coughs> Planet Jonernaut requested that Clark jump up on him to avoid the ever-rising tide. Keith, using his nitro thrower against the bad guy instead of the audience, completely encased the floating body of Marvin Glass in a sort of dry ice cube. Clark, from atop Planet Jonernaut, yelled to Keith the wacky and wondrous news that Planet Juggernaut was John. Planet Jonernaut sent one extendo arm toward Keith as the other reached for a breach in the dome above. Keith threw down his riot shield, rode it like a surfboard toward Jonernaut's extended hand, and shot a saw through the middle of the newly formed ice cube and directly into the frozen Marvin glass trapped inside. The scrap pit began to shake violently, and Jonernaut successfully pulled Keith and Clark up through the dome as lava moved up through the cracking and bubbling scrap pit. Marvin Glass, sliced by the saw and still frozen in this strange chemical compound, melted into the lava pit below. And the scene changed. There was a road lined on either side by trees that reached over, blending together, creating an autumnal canopy. A rabbit recklessly raced across the patchy pavement, leaving behind a trail of blood thick enough to assume the animal's fate. A boxy black sedan drove furiously down the road, trailed closely by a four-wheeler. They took a right down the gravel road, blowing past a sign that read, The Contention Woods, and text at the bottom of the screen came up. 25 years earlier.
What's up, everybody? It's Zach. Still, still Zach. So much Zach. And we are now halfway through this stupidly overwhelming undertaking of a full recap of season one. It's been really fun, and I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad. No, it's been a it's been a bit of a fucking nightmare, but it's halfway over. Yay! Uh, thankfully, we've had an absolute shitload of fun recording some bonus content for everyone, which will be on this main feed soon. More on what exactly that entails at the end of this little epilogue. And later this month, patrons will see a new episode drop in that exclusive feed, wherein I run Joe, Luke, and Thomas through a space adventure in a space game of space. Roll for shoes. That session was seriously some of the most lighthearted, enjoyable role play I've ever had the pleasure to take privilege in. <laughs> uh, and for those of you who slosh around in the den of sin, be on the lookout for a live stream this weekend. We'll post the time and date on our Twitter and Instagram at Pretending Pod. Uh, we're playing a game called, oh fuck, I can't remember. Patrick? Something about Patrick. Inside Patrick, we're all, we're all, no. As for the next and third part of this here season one recap project, I, I need your help and I'm willing to send you clothes in return. There's a link in the show notes and on Twitter, fuck Jack Dorsey and Facebook, fuck Mark Zuckerberg to a Google doc we can all share. It'll have the transcript for this episode, which covered episodes 24 through 46, as well as the previous recap covering episodes one through 23. Now, if you write up a few succinct but thorough paragraphs recapping an episode of the show, you will be entered to win a PTBP t-shirt. Now, if you write up a few succinct but thorough paragraphs recapping three or more episodes, you will be entered to win one of five PTBP t-shirts. So if only five people write up three or more episodes, boom, you got a shirt. And finally, if you really go heels to Betsy on this, if you write up a few succinct but thorough paragraphs recapping five or more episodes, I will guarantee you a PTBP t-shirt. And leave your handle or email address uh, commented in there so we know who wrote what and how to contact you in case we get to ship you a shirt like Dylan B did. Dylan B wrote recaps for six episodes and a shirt is on its way. Also, an enormous shout out to Here Be Tigers from the Discord who so far has written four recaps that were absolutely excellent. For those of you looking into joining this project and earning a shirt, those recaps by Here Be Tigers are what you should model your work after. Succinct, but thorough. Ugh, bless you, Here Be Tigers. So please join us, earn a shirt, and help us finish the remaining two recap episodes so we can deliver you the final arc of season one of Pretending to Be People. I am so very excited. Now, the next episode you see on this main feed will be a bonus. Unfortunately, Luke wasn't able to join us because he got COVID. Wear a fucking mask. Thankfully, he is feeling much better now and will be joining us for the end of this bonus scenario, which is a game of Call of Cthulhu with guest keeper Scott Dorward, an RPG writer and editor whose name might sound familiar because he co-authored the Pulp Cthulhu campaign Two-Headed Serpent, as well as a collection of six scenarios for Call of Cthulhu named Nameless Horrors. He also wrote an excellent scenario called Helen 
Franklin, Texas, that's in Stygian Fox's Cthulhu Modern book called The Things We Leave Behind, and so, so, so much other amazing material. Scott is also an established podcaster, and I have personally listened to every episode of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. Scott is a magnificent game master with the voice of an angel in the mind of an elder god. And we had a disgusting, revolting, marvelous time playing a scenario he wrote and published set in a Hooverville in the Great Depression entitled Bleak Prospect. Thank you. Thank you all so much for your continued support. Times are hard. Check in on your friends. Be honest. Be vulnerable. Admit it when you need help. I'm finally doing that myself. Uh, For years, I've said everyone should be in therapy, all while not seeing a therapist. I even got my degree in behavioral science. I understood the benefits. I understood it would help me, but I was scared. Well, fuck that. I'm still scared, but I'm I'm not going to let that stop me. So I'm starting therapy, and I'm consciously working to become who I want to be. I hope you're all doing well. This was all very serious. Quick, uh, picture Tom Hanks in a courtroom like he's the judge, but he's wearing a mesh crop top, and you're pretty sure his nipples are pierced and connected by a nerd's rope. Okay, bye. Hot dog.